welcome to the Traffle Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcy. Today's guest is a former music executive and is now a podcast executive. He is the founder of Tenderfoot TV, Donald Albright. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I'm glad to be here. Glad to chat with you. I'm excited for this convo for a few reasons. You hit both of the worlds that I'm operating in right now, both hip hop and podcasting. And one of the things that stuck out to me about your background is that you brought a lot of the skills and a lot of the tactics that have been successful for you in podcasting from what you learned in hip hop. You were in Atlanta and you eventually got into the music industry. What was that experience like? What were some of the big takeaways from your time in, in Atlanta? I mean, I got to Atlanta just at a really interesting time in music. It was late 97 is when I came to Atlanta and I ended up getting into the industry later on that year. Kind of fell into it, working with LaFace on the street team and just happened to be at a party, started networking, got a few business cards and was like, hey, this would be a cool hobby to take up, just promoting for record labels. So we were passing out flyers, putting up poster boards. And, you know, for me, everything just kind of, if it's involving money, making or losing money, it's a business. So I took that mindset and we started a business that was a promotions company. And this was at the time when, you know, Outcast was coming off AT Aliens. Goody Mob was about to release Still Standing. You know, the hip hop scene in Atlanta was just on fire. You know, TI was like a year or two later, Tip was signed to LaFace and we just got an opportunity to work with all those artists. So I just learned that I learned how accessible people were to me that way back in California, being far removed from the music or entertainment scene, everything was just on TV and it seemed a million miles away. But if you're in Atlanta, if you're in the place where it's happening and you're going to school in the AUC, I was going to Clark Atlanta at the time and I would just see these guys roll through campus and I would just go to a club and everybody would be there. And it was like, man, everybody's arms length away. And I felt like I'm not taking advantage of an opportunity if I'm not trying to see how they got to where they are and how I could fit into this growing industry. So yeah, I just learned so much on the fly, not even knowing that I was learning at the time, I was just experiencing. And later I would realize, oh, I learned that I wasn't just there. You know, I picked up something. In that moment, too, you came, as you mentioned, when things were starting to ramp up for the past couple of decades, that hole does not let up. Atlanta still stayed strong. Did you feel that it was going to lead to the dominance it had today? I definitely didn't see like the I don't know who could have predicted that a southern rain on hip hop would last so long because it moved. It shifted. Right. It's East Coast and West Coast. And you had artists from the Midwest, you know, coming up and then everyone would kind of share the spotlight. And then the moment that I knew it was real, it all kind of happened around the same time, right? Like it was either 2000 or 2001 NBA All-Star Weekend was in Atlanta, Georgia. Tip had this record called Never Scared with Bone Crusher. And everyone around the country was in Atlanta. And that record was the biggest record in Atlanta. And that's when Tip being, I think he was coming off of his first album. He may have been independent at the time, even in between. And the city was on fire because you had all these credible artists that transcended the South, but were very much the South. You know what I mean? Where what they were doing organically was being accepted nationwide and internationally. So you knew the talent was there. It didn't feel like it was regional. It didn't feel like it was local. It felt bigger than that. And when everyone came to Atlanta, they got to hear it. And then I swear, like from that moment, it felt like the South just never stopped 
taking advantage of the moment and just, you know, kept kicking them out. So yeah, that moment is one that definitely sticks out to me. Those artists specifically, they've been able to stay within the fold. TI is still very much a part of what's happening in the city. So is Gucci. So are all these artists. And you see them taking the young Atlanta artists now under their wing. That is one of the things that sets Atlanta apart from some of the other cities. Feels like there's a bit more of that collegial bond between the artists of 20 years ago and the artists of now that is a bit rarer to see in some of these other regions. You know, I grew up in like the beef era, you know what I mean? Where there's East, West, or whether it's LA guys beefing, whether it's Bay Area guys beefing. One thing about the South is that I think the South had been overlooked for so long that they were forced to always stick together, right? Not even forced. I think it's just Southern hospitality coming through in that as well, right? Where I never heard like, oh man, we don't rock with them guys. They from Houston, we from Atlanta, you know, now they from Miami, we from Atlanta. I just never heard any of that. So if it was Master P coming to Atlanta, bringing that New Orleans vibe up here, he was right there, 559, you know, doing his thing. And that, just like everyone else that came through, there was no like, oh, you can't come here. You got to pay your taxes. You got to do this, that, and the third. The culture just wasn't that. It was all inviting, especially from other artists from the South. So that's where, like, when Jeezy came out, naturally my mind was like, oh, how is he going to coexist with Tip? You know what I mean? Because Tip's the king of the South. He goes, Jeezy just running the city at the time when Trapper Die, I think it was my first mixtape. Yeah, that was Trapper Die. I think everyone outside of Atlanta or with my same mentality of like, oh, two guys going for the crown, it wasn't that at all. It was like, oh, welcome. You know what I'm saying? How can we help each other out? And then still to this day, you see the South is still taking that same approach, whether it be the veterans with the new artists or just, you know, mending any beefs that do come about. It's never beyond like, one or two guys like having a problem, it's usually like, okay, if these guys have a problem, we're going to come together and figure it out. And it just works like that. Things were going well for you. And then you decided to make the shift into podcasting. Was it a tough decision to switch from what you had known, the career you had gone into, into this new medium that was rising, but was still very much in the early stages? It's perfect timing, but it was accidental. So to be honest, like, I didn't have this vision of like, you know what, I'm going to pivot into this new medium and I'm going to learn it and we're going to build a company. So my eventual business partner, uh, Payne Lindsay, I knew of him from years prior. He was in like a rap rock kind of a group. Right. And I was managing at the time, it was probably like 2008, 2009, I was managing or co-managing Lloyd with my partner, Nooney. And Lloyd had a producer who knew Payne and Payne's group. So they actually collaborated. So Payne's group had a song with Lloyd. So I knew of that group just because they had a song with him. And I liked the song. So I thought, oh, this is, you know, cool song, cool group. And then never paid much attention after that. It kind of died down. Years later, our management companies moving forward. We're still managing Lloyd. We're managing August Alcina at the time. And he was on the verge of blowing up. I love this shit was out. And we're about to start putting an EP out pretty soon. So I get an email from this guy named Payne Lindsay. And he's like, hey, I'd love to shoot a video for August Alsina. And I was at dinner and I read the email to the guys who I was sitting with. And one of the guys was like, oh, that's Payne from Right Side of the Tree. You know, that hip hop or rock group. And I was like, oh, OK. Like, I didn't know who Payne was, but he had that credibility because he already had the familiarity with Lloyd. So I was like, okay, cool. You know, I'll give him a shot at shooting this music video. And we ended up shooting the video. We shot the downtown video, which was a staple in August's career and the title track for his EP. 
and working with Payne, it was great. Like he was very creative. He was able to take my ideas and implement them. And then we ended up doing that for several different music videos and really built a working relationship. We went from one $2,000 video to a $10,000 video to, you know, $50,000 video. Then we toured internationally together. So we learned how to work together. And I learned that his ideas were better than my ideas. So I stopped feeding him ideas and saying, Hey, go do this, go do that. And just let him have the creative freedom to do what he wanted. And we started making better content. So that's kind of the long story of how he as a music video director was getting burnt out. And the creativity in music videos really wasn't inspiring him anymore. So he had that vision of doing a side project that was like a true crime docuseries for TV. And he asked me if I wanted to do it with him. And I knew nothing about true crime docuseries, but I was like, you know what? I'm burnt out of this music scene as well. Like managing talent, you have to deal with talent. You have to deal with attitudes. You have to deal with people, you know, you meet them one way and over years they change and in your relationship starts to be strained. And I was dealing with that. So I was like, yeah, I'm down to do anything else right now because I'm burnt out. So we realized quickly, we didn't know anyone in Hollywood. We had no connections. We didn't have funding for a doc. So Payne being someone who had listened to Serial and listened to podcasts decided, let's make this an audio doc, a podcast. And I had never listened to a podcast before. So I was just coming from the space of, hey, sounds good. I kind of know what a podcast is. Let's do it. And then I finally, Payne urged me, like, you got to listen to Serial. I listened to Serial and I was like, oh, okay. Now I completely understand how creative and how good this can be just in audio. So from there, I started to switch my mindset into like, okay, this is now a business. How do we grow a business? How do we grow a podcast? And yeah, it just started to take off from there. So yeah, it was a a roundabout way to get to an industry that I knew nothing about. Was it tough to jump into true crime specifically? Because podcasting is so wide and then the two of you, more music backgrounds going into the investigative journalism and the detective work involved with something like that. Yeah. So I left the detective work up to him completely. I was like, (laughs) I was the guy who he could bounce ideas off of. I knew about the case, but he was the one using his own curiosity in finding all that stuff out, knocking on doors, cold calling people. That's all something that you're either going to have the balls to do it or not, right? Like you're just going to go out there and do it or you're not. So I can't take any credit for that. But I think the dynamic that we brought to podcasting is because we weren't podcasters. We didn't know how to do it. So we didn't pretend like we did. We just did what we thought was best. So the approach was just completely different. And we just tried to take everything that we learned in other industries and our curiosity. And me personally, I felt like I've always been telling stories, right? Like if you go back and listen to albums that at a certain point I was just promoting albums, right? And then I got into you know, managing and A&Ring and being able to be part of the creative process. And I look back at those albums that I was creatively involved with and we were telling stories. We were shooting little documentaries as music videos. We were shooting documentaries as additional content for albums. So like we were always telling stories. So this was no different. And we are always telling cinematic stories where the music also was part of the story or helped to fill in the blanks of the story. And that was kind of natural for us to transition from audio storytelling on the music side to audio storytelling on the narrative side. 
That makes a ton of sense. I think especially now in this era where it is easier to jump into different mediums, it's often the people like yourself that don't necessarily have the direct experience doing that specific function. But because the aspect of the style of work you do was done in a different industry, that can then be transferred over. And a lot of those same dynamics of how this is communicated on this platform, regardless of that platform, serves you quite well. In terms of the performance, you did really well with Up and Vanish. You had, was it over 150 million downloads from the first go around? We had, again, no knowledge of the industry. We didn't know how to monetize and make money off the podcast. We didn't have any expectations. This was literally a proof of concept so that someone in Hollywood would say, oh, I like that. Maybe we can turn that into a docuseries to get right back to square one where we wanted to be, right? Instead, you know, it slowly built over like five weeks, 5,000 downloads here, then 10,000. And then it just blew up after like episode six or seven, started getting hundreds of thousands of downloads a week. Was there something that happened in episode six or seven, or was it just the gradual climb and then it just... So I got to look at the exact timing, but I know there's a moment when all this came together, right? We were very strategic in like, we launched it. The town that this crime happened in was a town of 3,000 people in South Georgia. So targeted Facebook ads at that one town, right? And everyone knew about this case. It was spreading like wildfire in the town and then in the county and then in South Georgia and really had this organic growth. And then it started just to spread a little bit throughout the podcast industry, just from recommendations. We bought an ad on a show called The Breakdown, AJC show about another Atlanta crime. So it was a you know, crime audience, Georgia audience. We bought an ad and I didn't really have the money to buy the ad. We had to negotiate the price down. I swiped my credit card for like the last remaining balance that I had on there, like 2,500 bucks and just went all in and bought this one ad on this show. And then Steve Wilson from Apple he had previously commented on Twitter that he liked our cover art and we didn't know him at all. We were like, Oh wow, that's dope. Apple knows that we exist. Like That's great. I'd say two weeks after he sent that tweet, he featured us on new and noteworthy. And the same week that new and noteworthy hit is the same week that the ad hit on the breakdown. And that moment is the moment where we took off and never looked back. So it was just like all these random things happening from the growth from that small town, the growth being organic, those targeted Facebook ads, having good cover art, you know what I mean? That someone liked and saw and then tweeted about and then decided to feature us all like in a seven day period. And I swear it just blew up from there, you know, and then the traction on it started just to grow and grow. And by the time we were at episode, I believe it was episode 10, we were on a two week hiatus and we learned that there were two arrests that were about to be made. And by that time we were 10 million downloads or something create 10, 15 million downloads, which was amazing. Like I celebrated every milestone from hundred thousand to 500 to a million. And now we're at 10 million. I'm thinking that he gets no better than 10 million downloads that next month after the case broke and they made two arrests, we did 20 million downloads in the one month. So to date, the series as a whole over two seasons is like 350 million total downloads, which is by far, like it's inconceivable. Like it's not something that we ever thought could happen. If people say my, your wildest dreams, I could have thrown a crazy number out there. It would have been like a million downloads and we're times 350. You know what I mean? So it's, it's pretty crazy. 
How did that success shift your business plan and how you wanted to do things moving forward? Because you had said in the beginning, right? You had saw this as a concept to be able to sell for a docu-series or a documentary to a broader entity, but you see the power of this and you now have this podcast network that could stand alone and be very successful and profitable. What was that shift like? For someone who didn't know anything about the industry, talking about myself and pain, we had to learn everything on the fly. We had to learn from our mistakes. We had to learn from watching what other people were doing. I'll tell you what, like, and I said this a couple of times, but I have to give a lot of credit to startup, the Gimlet podcast, right? Imagine you starting a podcast company and you have one hit podcast and you're like, what am I supposed to do? And then there's a podcast about starting a podcast company that you can just listen to and say, oh, okay, I see what they did. Let me, I'm going to try that. Or, okay, at this stage, they grew to this many employees. And at this stage, they did that and they got investment. And I learned a bunch of stuff from just listening to podcasts about starting a podcast company. So that was a huge cheat sheet. I have still on my phone, I have probably like two pages in my notes doc from what I, the notes that I took from startup. You know what I mean? So that's how we just learned on the fly. And I've always been an entrepreneur where I've started businesses on my own, maybe with a partner or two, but no investment, you know, no million dollar infusion of cash, no $10,000 infusion of cash. It was always, what are we investing from our pockets, from our savings? So we didn't take the approach of let's go raise money. We just did it organically, bootstraps and, and put it together. So that mentality, we couldn't lose, right? We knew that the loss could kill the company, not just kill the one podcast. So we had to be very strategic and how we would grow the company. Like, how do we scale this? We have one hit true crime podcast and we have a company apparently that is really just this one true crime podcast. So how do you scale that company? You don't go and do a sports talk show. You don't go and do a hip hop talk show. You go and do another true crime show and you see how well can we transfer this up and vanished audience to this new IP. This sworn was our second project. We took talent from up and vanished had gave him his own show and we said, okay, let's see if this works. And it worked. You know, we were getting about a million downloads per episode up and vanished. And we were getting 600,000 downloads on Swarm. So 60% conversion rate from podcast one to podcast two. So from there, they're like, okay, there's our model. It's not that we just love true crime. It's just that true crime is where we're winning. So we're going to keep doing the thing that's working. And we happen to be fans of true crime. So it's not like we were doing something that we didn't like. It's just that we had to be smart in how we scaled this company. So that's kind of what we did. What did partnerships look like for you? Because I know at this stage, you were doing everything solo and a lot of it, you weren't generating ads, but you clearly had the numbers to prove that you could do so yourself. But then you had teamed up with How Stuff Works and some other organizations. What was the decision behind that? Were there other alternatives that you would consider around that time? Because we didn't know many people in the industry, I mean, no one, we didn't know, like, we weren't podcasters, so we didn't know any podcasters, right? We didn't know anyone at House of Works, we didn't know anyone at Audio Boom. we were just kind of seeing who would reach out to us. And we were with Audio Boom. they were doing our hosting sales distribution, they reached out to us and said, hey, do you want to monetize this after like episode five? And we're like, sure. What does that mean? Like money off of it? Like We didn't know. <laughs> so we're like, yeah, sure, let's monetize this. And so they were selling ads. And We learned a ton from mistakes that we made. One thing, you know, when you have a project that grows rapidly from 10,000 downloads an episode to a million, we were giving away a million impressions, but only collecting money on 10,000 impressions. So like we were literally 
selling ads for $250 and providing them with impressions worth $25,000. Like Blue Apron was killing it off of us because we, we didn't know how big we were going to be. So we had done these deals for low money and then they were getting a hundred, a thousand times value. You know what I mean? So the reason we hear all these Blue Apron deals is because you all were underselling them. So they're all like, oh yeah, this is it. Massively undersold. Blue Apron was coming. <laughs> Paying for 10,000, getting a million. So we learned. And the great part was we got in the industry in a time where we could actually help shape it. We had a huge podcast and we could help shape. Now we're not going to do ads like that. We're going to do ads like this. Like we made a mistake. Let's change this. So we got to shape it as well. The partnership aspect of it was huge because we learned from all of our partners. So my strategy was partner with as many people as possible so we can learn how they do it. No exclusive partnerships, just learn from them. This is how their sales team does it. This is how their marketing team does it. And we learn. So how stuff works, again, like happened in a real organic way. We only got an office in Pont City Market because how stuff works was in Pont City Market. So while we were looking for office space, Payne found a shared co-working space in the same building. That's how stuff works. And we're like, hey, if it's good enough for them, we should probably be in that building too. And that actually a year later worked out for us because when Steve Wilson and James Boggs from Apple came to visit How Stuff Works, they were visiting us afterwards just for a general meeting. And in their meeting, they told How Stuff Works, like, yeah, we're going to go upstairs and talk to the Tenderfoot guys. And Jason Hogue from How Stuff Works was like, oh, I didn't know they were in the building. And like, because he was familiar with our podcast. So he emailed Payne and said, hey, I, I didn't realize you guys were in the building. We should meet up. So eventually, you know, they kept running into each other on the elevators, finally set a meeting. And in that meeting, they said, hey, like, we should figure out how to do something together. And I had previously told Payne about Atlanta Monster, the idea to cover the Atlanta child murders. And when we met with Jason, he had the same idea. So we were like, again, all organic, you know, same wavelength of how we're thinking about this. It just made sense to partner up. And we felt like as a new company, who was getting some pushback from like, kind of like the established podcast industry because we were novices, Payne wasn't a podcaster. So we felt like what better partnership for us than a company that's very much the podcast like establishment. You know, they have a billion downloads. They are a very well-respected name. Who better for us to learn from as a company with two podcasts and no credibility except for some success, which doesn't always credibility, no better partner than House of Works. So just made perfect sense on all levels. Can you talk a little bit about that difference between success and credibility? Because I think for a lot of people listening, that might seem a bit confusing to them because they're like, oh, well, you all had over a hundred million downloads. How is that not your credibility? It's a tough one to me. And like in music, I guess it's similar to music, right? You can be huge, successful, popular, and everyone like, oh man, that's bubblegum or whatever, right? Like that's not true hip hop or that guy can't even sing. He just has this gimmicky song. And I knew what we had wasn't a gimmick. I knew what we had was actually premium. And the fact that people didn't see that was because there's a division in podcasting that exists. There's how things used to be and there's how things are now. And to me, I look at it like before cereal and after cereal, you know, cereal was premium storytelling but there was still like the, the journalistic integrity was there. But if you're not Sarah Koenig, if you're not This American Life and you're inspired by that, what do you do? Do you go to school and get a journalism degree and then you go find a company to fund your podcast? If you're paying Lindsay, you just say, okay, I know how to edit video so I can edit audio. I know how to go talk to people 
nothing's stopping me from going to knock on a door and ask a guy a question, doing a cold call and trying to investigate. But there's people who have gone and made that their profession, you're going to get pushback sometimes. You know, it's no different than in, in Hollywood, right? When the rappers get into acting, you hear actors say, oh man, I can't believe these guys, they didn't go to school for this. They didn't do, you know, and here they are taking my jobs. So there was a little bit of that. And I think there's also just where we came from was this has to be entertaining to be successful. Now we're going to be very respectful in how we talk about the crime, but a documentary is entertaining, right? The music in a documentary, it sets the mood. It makes you feel a certain way. You know, something's about to happen because of the music, right? Suspenseful music, music that's setting the tone and the mood. And we really dove into that musically. And we actually got flack for that, for like, oh, you know, suspenseful music and cliffhangers. Like, that's not how you do a podcast. And we're like, says who? <laughs> you know, we make podcasts that we would want to listen to. And I want to listen to stuff that's going to entertain me and cliffhang me on an episode where I cannot wait till next week to listen, right? That's how I am about my TV shows, about my documentaries. Why wouldn't I want my podcast to be the same way? So that's where the division came from, like a little bit of pushback where like these guys aren't making credible podcasts because they're doing it wrong. That's not journalistic integrity or that's journalism 101. You can't do this. And we're just like, hey, we don't know the rules. So if to us, there are no rules. We're just going to make something that the people are going to decide if they like it or not. That makes a lot of sense. In terms of those partnerships to add that credibility, I've seen you've been very strategic in terms of who you partner with and how you go about these. I saw this quote where you said, I don't want to be in a partnership where we are an employee. We're either joint control or we maintain control. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Independence has always been big. I, I can count on one hand the number of actual jobs that I've had, right? It's because my first company I started when I was 18, t-shirt design company. And I learned from my dad who, you know, has a construction company. And just like that independence and freedom is always big. And I don't mind sharing that with someone, right? If you're going to come in with money, if you're going to come in with creative, help us build a team, help us build IP, we should be able to do this thing together, have joint control, but to either work for someone else and make something that someone else can say, nah, we don't like that, change it. And that's a lot like how it works in TV. It used to work like that in music, but then you know the artists are slowly gaining more and more control and now almost have complete control over their art, which I think is great. And that's how it should be in podcasting because that's how it started, right? So podcasting has always been independent. No one wanted to touch it because there wasn't any money in it. Now there's money in it. You have all these corporate land grabs, which is natural. That's going to happen, right? Everyone wants to mine IP in podcasting and they want to take it to TV or they want to snatch up the Rogans and the Ringers and all that and put them underneath their umbrella. Now your Spotify subscription has more value. So you're going to main, you know, maintain that subscription. So I understand why everyone is doing it. But if we had to get into a situation where someone wanted to own our stuff outright, we would have to really think hard on how do we continue to make content or do we continue to make content at that point? Because it's disheartening to work on something so hard, know more about it than anyone else and how people who know nothing about it dictate what it should sound like, who you can and can't talk to, when it should come out. I get some legal restrictions here and there. No one wants to get sued. Everyone needs to have legal review. And we do that independently. And you know, other companies take more aggressive stances on that. But I can't see that happening on a creative level. It's like someone coming in and saying, nah, change that 808. Uh, I don't like that hook. I want you to change that. It's like, man, who are you? And where'd you come from? Like, I wrote it. I researched it. I sung it. Whatever, you know, whatever that is, like, you can't come here and tell me what's good. 
Right. It's like, if you're not with me in the gym, now you're at the finish line trying to tell me what I can and can't include in this. Exactly. And none of it is earned. You know what I mean? At least in music, for the most part, not all the time, sometimes it's like the person telling you has been there, has done that. But usually when the person has done that, they know where they should chime in and where they shouldn't because they know that they got to where they are believing in themselves defying the odds when someone told them you can't do that they did it anyway then they became successful and they became a successful artist then executive then president a lot of times on this side of on the tech side these guys have never done it before but you want to tell the guys who have done it how they should do it and luckily we have partners in cadence 13 for example complete 100 trust in what we do creatively you know they're just like hey go make it you know, we're going to support you. We're going to put it out. Great partners. Same with iHeart. You know, they make stuff with us or they just say, hey, you make it, we'll put it out. And there's trust there. So finding the right partners is, is key in everything that you do. This partnership and IP ownership conversation and podcasting is so timely because in the past few months, we've seen so many public examples come through. Looking at Barstool Sports, they had that issue with that Call Her Daddy podcast. The folks that run the Nod podcast, which is through Gimlet and now Spotify, they've been public. And just recently, Joe Budden just aired out Spotify over all of his stuff. A lot of it is what you're talking about. He's on wax talking about how the COO was asking him, oh, how's L.A.? And he doesn't even live in L.A. And they're trying to tell him like what to do with this podcast. You must be watching a lot of this and being like, man, this is crazy. Yeah, it's twofold, right? There's two things that are crazy about it. You see the deals and you're like, wow, that much money. That's crazy. Like (laughs) everyone wants to cash a 10 million or a hundred million dollar check, right? Like they're buying these companies up for either buying these shows up or licensing these shows or $200 million deals for podcast production companies. And that's the first thing that's crazy and amazing about it. And then the second thing is the growing pains. Spotify is growing at a pace that I don't know we've seen before, right? Like they were like, okay, we have podcasts on our platform. And then they were dabbling in it here and there. They kept changing strategies for about a year. And they said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to spend a billion dollars and we're going hard and fast. And they just bought them a bunch of stuff. How do you maintain that, right? I think that's what they're struggling with now is like, okay, all this now is under our roof. How do we manage it? How do we put the right, it's like with TVs, the right showrunner makes the world a difference. The right A&R, a world of difference. So you either have to sign them and say, nothing has changed. Go do you. You know, we're going to be as hands-on or as hands-off as you want. That way, no one has to fake conversation with Joe Budden about how's life in LA when he doesn't live there, right? You're not trying to bond with someone over something that's just all fake, right? It feels fake to someone who just built their thing on their own. They're like, man, this feels like corporate America, not like independent, fresh, new podcasting, a new medium, which is what it's supposed to feel like. Naturally, when you grow that fast, you're going to have some growing pains. I think they'll get it together. They have good people over there. It's just a matter of like knowing who you're dealing with also, right? You're dealing with guys who are self-made, who are from a hip hop culture where they say what's on their mind, they do what they want to do, and they built their own empires, right? You got to learn how to deal with those kind of people. And it takes the right people to do that. It's like having the, an A&R that doesn't understand trap music and they're like in the studio acting like they do. That's, they're obvious. You know what I mean? I feel conflicted about it because it makes me feel like the investment in podcasting is great. It's what we need. Podcasting doesn't need to be the 
stepchild of content, <laughs> content creation and media. It needs to be at the forefront. So we need the infusion of cash. We need people to be making a living off of this, not just having to do it as a side job, right? Or a hobby. And the other part is like, we have to grow it responsibly. And we're trying to do that at our company. We're small. We have no investment. We have strategic partners. We know what type of investment we would be looking for and what type of strategic partnership we'd be looking for on another level. And that's what we're going to go after. And we want to grow this in a way that makes sense to our audience, makes sense for our company in the style of podcast that we do. Would there be a type of Spotify or another type of big player that could offer you a check that would make you be like, okay, well, let's use this to take Tenderfoot to the next level? I think it's hard to compete in a medium growing this fast, staying completely independent. Now, you could be completely independent and go raise $30 million, right? But you're really not independent at that point. You're still answering to someone. You're still making decisions based on much larger amounts of money than you had before because you have to turn this money around because you now have investors that need to make their return. So you're beholden to someone if you're taking someone else's money. Now, there's no creative involvement there, but sometimes that can be beneficial, right? Our deals with iHeart and with Cadence are, are completely different, whereas we've built a production team within iHeart to work on our shows. We work creatively. We just signed a nine-show deal with them And that IP is going to be jointly owned and controlled, but some of it is our ideas, some of it is their ideas. So it's not like I'm giving away something alone that we came up with and sharing with someone who didn't come up with it. It's truly something that's a give and take. With Cadence, we come up with all the ideas, we put them out, we have full ownership, and they're a great partner on marketing, on sales and distribution. And so it's a different kind of of deal. So we would take those same type of partnerships and see like, which is more valuable as an overall type of deal? Do you want someone to come in and buy us outright? Probably not. You know what I mean? Obviously money talks, right? But what is our role moving forward, right? I'm not a great employee. You know what I mean? I want to be someone who can wake up whenever I want to wake up because I'll work till 4 a.m. So if I have to be in an office faking like I'm something that I'm not at 8 a.m., that's not the best use of my time or skill set, right? So if they understand and respect what we've been doing and how we've been doing it, and they're smart enough to say, if we just give these guys X amount of money and freedom, they'll just do this on a higher level and support, right? We would need support to scale from 10 employees to 50 or to 100, but I wouldn't want to change the fundamental way that we tell stories, that we communicate with our team and decide who is on our team. Because that's what I was saying the other day. Like, it's the teams that make these companies. Spotify is just a logo, right? iHeart is just a logo. It's the people who are in those meetings, the people who are creating, the people who are doing those deals, how they interact with you is what makes the company the culture. So we find the company with the right culture, then I'm game to do any kind of deal as long as we see eye to eye and there's a joint level of respect there. I've also seen the expansion of what you all have started to get involved with as well. I know you were involved with that Insecure T podcast. That was the follow-up podcast after Insecure this season, which is my favorite season of Insecure. I think that those type of podcast content just make a lot of sense because I think that the true crime podcast and those are great, but those are a lot of podcasts that are time intensive and you have an audience that is engaged, but there's a high likelihood that they may also be engaged in other types of content that could be much quicker to produce. And the amount of effort it needs to do a insecure recap with 
to people that are avid fans of the show and understand the culture, much lower lift, but the ad dollars can equal out. And I think those are the things that really expand a network like yours and make it even stronger. So that's dope. Yeah. No, that was like a dream come true. We're trying to get into other things. Like we're now at a point where we have our partnerships in place. We're a company that our feet are firmly planted on the ground. We can finally plan like 12 to 24 months in advance. So we're working on more topical talk style shows. We're working on more scripted shows. And to find out that Issa Rae was a fan of our podcast and that she listens to Live and Die in LA and Atlanta Monster, DC Sniper, was mind blowing to me because there are very few like celebrities. Joe Rogan might be the biggest name because like it's him and it's his show. It's named after him. But most shows that are serialized storytelling, like Up and Vanish, it's the show that's like the celebrity, it's the hit. So you don't really know who's listening. But I've run into so many people, actors, singers who are listening to our content. And I'm like, wow, like I'm listening to your music every Sunday. Me and my wife are glued to Insecure and I'm watching Issa Rae as a fan and then not knowing that on her spare time, she's listening to podcasts that I make, right? So like that is just a crazy thing to compute in my mind, but it's podcast has taken me where I thought music would, right? The level of success, the level of recognition. Not that I was seeking it because I was never seeking recognition for myself. I was always out trying to make other people's dreams come true, right? I'm managing an artist that wants to be a celebrity. that wants to be a rapper or a producer who wants to have a hit record. And I'm always putting myself on the line for other people's dreams, where in, in this case, I'm putting my ideas in the forefront and the ideas themselves are being successful, which in turn raises my profile. It's a complete 360, but to see that how making something that is resonating with people all across the world, whether they be, you know, just a guy working at a grocery store to Issa Rae, all listening to the same exact thing was just mind blowing for me to just hear people tell me that. So yeah, that was a, definitely a highlight so far. And I, to not just know that she's listening to our podcast, but then to be able to work with her on looking for Latoya and, and takes a creation that was derived in the writer's room of Insecure and, and take that to podcast. Our hope is to work with them even more in the future. So yeah, that was a great experience and kind of really let you know kind of what we're going to be doing more of in the future and not just unscripted true crime. You have people that are going to be coming on and launching their own podcast. What does that look like in terms of their ownership or the stakes that they might be able to have in the content itself? The answer for us is probably different than most other companies. Because we're small, two owners, no investors, we can do whatever we want to do, right? We have no exclusive deal. So if, if someone said, hey, I got a podcast, I want to take it to Spotify. We can go to Spotify and see if they want it. We can go anywhere. And we can do any type of deal. There's no corporate structure that's like, these are the deals that we do, this templated deal, and we can't go below this percentage or we can't give this much IP. It's honestly about what are you bringing to the table? If you're going to bring everything to the table and you need Tenderfoot for some creative development and marketing because you have a true crime podcast, but you're going to go out there, make it, research it, post it. If you're doing the heavy lifting, you have a much better case for like what you should get off the front and off the back end, off of ownership, derivative, potential, all of that. But it, it also like, what does Tenderfoot bring to the table in any of these cases, right? You may just need to get a great deal done. And that's where we can say, okay, we don't have the audience to market this, but we can get you a great deal. And now our deal will be reflective of what everyone's bringing to the table. You have a true crime podcast. We know our value is the highest there, right? Because we can get you in front of tens of millions of people of audience, right? 
that's kind of how we decide what type of deals that we'll do and what the person will get from that deal, right? So it's really up in the air. We can do kind of whatever we want. Yeah, I feel like that flexibility is going to be key. I recently had read about Michaela Cole with her show, I Made a Story on HBO. She was in talks of having that show on Netflix initially, but then she was trying to get an equity stake or an ownership stake in the show. Netflix was like, we don't necessarily do that type of thing here. And that speaks to a bit of the rigidity that you had mentioned on your end that you don't necessarily want to have with your own company. When I think about that and some of those other podcasty examples, I think there's going to be a real opportunity for the companies like yours that are willing to say, hey, let's rewrite the rules a little bit. If we care about ownership, we want to be able to continue that and push that on to the people that work with us. And that's how we kind of get away from this dynamic that in many ways reflects a bit of what we saw in the music industry for so long. We're seeing more flexibility there. And I think over time, we're going to see more companies embrace the flexibility in other media forms. And I think podcasting will be one of the big ones. Absolutely. I mean, especially when you think about who we're trying to get to come into the space, right? Like, podcasting needs to attract the best creators. We need the Lena Waits. We need the Issa Rays. We need all the best creators to come into podcasting and tell stories. And they're not going to do it for less than what they would get elsewhere, right? If anything, they're going to want more than what they would give in the TV space, in the film space. So if TV, and this is, you know, I have some experience in making a TV show off of Up and Vanished and very different experience. TV and film are, at least TV, much more controlled it dictate you can and can't do this. This is the deal. There is no renegotiation, all that. And it's tough. And if podcasting takes that approach too early at all, to be honest, but if they take that approach, you're definitely not attracting the kind of people that you want into this space. You want people to realize that are in spaces like the top creators in TV and film to realize that they can do whatever they want to do in podcasting. They can get the deal they want to get, put out the content they want to put out mine IP, and then take it to TV. You want them to come here first and then go do what they're best at, right? I think if those industries keep those same old rules, it's going to be a huge, huge problem. For sure. Well, before we let you go, I want to ask if you have any advice or suggestions for the people that in many ways now are looking up to you. They've seen what you've built, especially as a Black executive in this podcasting space. What advice would you give to them as they want to push their dreams and see their realities come true, whether it is starting with the podcast themselves or expanding to a podcast network? The advice changes because the industry changes so rapidly. You have to go after what you believe in, but what you're good at too, right? The main thing you can be is self-aware, right? You can't think you're good at something so long that you don't try something else. Like you might want to be a great host, but you're actually a great producer. And the more you're trying to be a great host, you're not realizing your true potential. And I think that's one of the things I've seen throughout music, throughout podcasting, is that know yourself and know what you're good at. And then it's just about understanding and learning the industry. And and it's gotten harder because it's rapidly changing. And you can know a lot. Like knowing a lot now is different than knowing a lot in 2016. 2016, there were less people. So when you knew a lot back then, you could navigate through a smaller industry and reach the right people. Now it's much harder because the industry has grown so much, right? So I think you have to just really put things into perspective of where you are and where the industry is and utilize your skill set. Also, you have to find creative ways to break through. Discovery is the biggest hurdle for podcasters these days. And it wasn't as big before because 
the industry was smaller. There weren't as many true crime podcasts. You weren't competing with what Spotify was doing on the original side, what iHeart was doing on the original side. They weren't making originals in 2016, right? A lot of these tech companies and podcast companies didn't even exist. So now if you have an up and vanished today, you're competing with a landscape wildly different than it was in 2016. So it can be much, much harder to break through. So you have to be creative. You have to figure out like, what is your competitive edge? And for us, our competitive edge was the marketing and the hustle that we learned in the music industry. So you got to figure out what yours is, take it to the next level and contribute to a new medium because it's still early enough where you can help to shape it or be that breakthrough podcast that does something different than what everyone else is doing. Well said. It's that street team mentality that broke through for y'all. Absolutely. If you start at the street team level, you can accomplish anything. I firmly believe that. <laughs> Donald, this has been a pleasure. Is there anything you'd like to plug or let the Trapital audience know about? Yeah, we just released a new podcast called Whistleblower. It's our first sports meets crime podcast. It's out now, episode one. It's covering the NBA betting scandal from 2007. So it's a little bit different than what we've done with straight true crime, but it's us branching out. We're going to go true crime adjacent, sports and crime to music and crime and kind of spread out from there. Keep that same mentality that we had originally with how do we scale this company in a smart way. So check out Whistleblower when you get a chance. Awesome. You might need to do one on this NBA bubble with everything going on. It's crazy. So much going on. But yeah, definitely some content that needs to be covered. For sure. All right. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell at least one friend about this podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. Go to Apple podcast, go to iTunes, leave a review, rate the podcast. I will screenshot and share the podcast ratings on Twitter and Instagram that can encourage more people to share the podcast. And if this podcast is your first introduction to Trapital, then make sure you check out the rest of the content. Go to Trapital.co. That's T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L dot C-O. Sign up for the weekly newsletter. Get all the content there. And also shoot me a text. That's also a great way to stay in touch with Trapital content. You can text me, Dan Runcie, at 415-234-3074. Thanks again. See you next week.